Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed, or whatever it is that I end up deciding to title this podcast. I haven't exactly given it a title as of yet, but as you guys probably know, this is the first episode, so I'm just kind of figuring things out, and we'll see how things go, and I will work on making it better in the future, so please give me a little bit of grace. I have not done podcasting solo like this, so hopefully everything goes well, but I think that we have an interesting subject today, and that is Alfred Kinsey, and just forewarning, we're going to be talking about some pretty heinous shit, so um, if you are easily disturbed by certain things, it might be a good idea to not tune into this episode, because we're going to be talking about some pretty intense stuff. And just to give you a little taste of what's to come in this episode, um, when most people think of Alfred Kinsey, they probably just think about sex research and about the time leading up to the period of the sexual revolution. But I don't think that many people have done a too good job, too good of a job of really focusing in on Kinsey. And Over the course of this podcast, we're going to be talking about Kinsey's connections to Nazis, to pedophilia, a Nazi pedophile, uh, Aleister Crowley. So we're going to get into some pretty crazy stuff, and we will end the episode talking about whether or not it is possible that Alfred Kinsey was involved with the CIA's MKUltra research. So going to be a lot of crazy stuff that we're going to be talking about. But before we get into all of that, um, just an idea of what this show is going to be about, not just today's episode, but in general, it's going to be a show where we talk about parapolitics, the deep state, philosophy, religion, all the stuff that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table All the stuff that makes your family and your friends already think that you're a bit of a weirdo. And what's going to be different about this show is that this is actually going to be the podcast that brings down the global ruling class. Because that is what is going to bring down the global ruling class, is a podcast. And that's what makes this one special, is that I am single-handedly going to bring down the globalists, going to bring down the elites with this podcast alone, so... It's pretty special stuff. You guys are going to want to get in on the ground floor. So without further ado, let's talk a little bit about Alfred Kinsey and what better place to start than with his early life. And before we get into his early life, I'm going to mention a quote that was said by Waldell Pomeroy, who would do research with Kinsey. And I think that it kind of sets the ground for what will come in later with the show. And he said of Kinsey that he would, quote, have done business with the devil himself if it would have furthered his research. And I think that as we go further into the subject, that we will see that this is indeed true. So, Kinsey's early life. Alfred Charles Kinsey was born in Hoboken, New Jersey on June 23rd of 1894. He was raised in a strict Methodist household, and he was said by most all of his biographers to have a domineering father, and it seems that he would 
upset his domineering father often, and so this might have played somewhat into his psychology. He would end up being unable to serve in World War I due to the double curvature of his spine and his possibly defective heart. And this is probably something that would have disappointed his father. And this isn't the only time that he would disappoint his father because this was a recurring theme throughout Kinsey's young life, but he also disappointed his father by switching his major from studying engineering to studying zoology. Kinsey biographer Wardell Pomeroy asked, how was it possible for a sickly religious boy who grew up to be a serious college student with an obvious talent for biology and an abysmal ignorance of sex, how did this young man evolve into a world authority on sexual behavior who could be mentioned in the same breath as Freud? So some accounts claim that Kinsey was not only a religious was not only religious as a young man, but that he was devout until entering college. But as often happens with college students, his religious faith would be smashed. And pro-Kinsey biographer James H. Jones, after combing through Kinsey's diaries and letters, he would talk about this conflict that existed between his religious sensibilities and his sexual appetites. And so James H. Jones says, Kinsey prayed, asking God to forgive him and to give him the strength not to sin again. The Boy Scouts manual advised boys to take cold showers to improve their health and to take their minds off sex. Kinsey took cold showers every morning, a practice he would continue for life, but neither prayer nor cold showers enabled him to stop masturbating. As a result, Kinsey was consumed by guilt. And so Kinsey, and this is not the only time that James H. Jones mentions this in his biography of Kinsey. But Kinsey was a compulsive masturbator, and this is something that would last throughout the course of his entire life. Not just his early life, but all the way through adulthood. And as we will see later on in the episode, that his masturbatory habits kept ratcheting up in, what would you say, severity, intensity? And so, Kinsey wasn't only a compulsive masturbator, but as often is true of young compulsive masturbators, he did not feel at home with the ladies, and he'd feel, he felt more comfortable in the presence of boys, and he would join the Boy Scouts at the age of 17, which is kind of an old age to join the Boy Scouts, and he would continue to wear his uniform into his married years while taking boys on hikes and sleeping alongside them in tents. A fellow counselor describing Kinsey's presence at camp said that his tent with his nature library of a dozen volumes was a rendezvous for a dozen of campers during the day and well into the night, even after taps had sounded and, were supposedly, and everyone was supposedly tucked in. So I'm not exactly sure what a nature library is. So Kinsey was initially a zoologist. He was specifically... Um, kind of the authority on gall wasp and so he would collect you know gall wasp and all kinds of other um, insects and what have you but anti-Kinsey biographer Dr. Judith Reisman someone who is very critical of Kinsey and we will keep coming back to her quotes um, throughout the course of this podcast and just a forewarning um, whether with any of the uh literature that I mentioned throughout this podcast. I'm not endorsing everything that these people think. This is just simply people who have written perspectives on Kinsey, whether pro or negative, and I think that 
whatever the quote is, gives us an insight into our topic today. So, anti-Kinsey biographer Dr. Judith Reisman speculates as to the nature of this library when she says, Years later, Kinsey would write a curious letter to an old scouting friend, perhaps one of the boys with whom he had shared his nature library, or to whom he devoted so much attention during his adolescent, college, postgraduate, and even married years. Kinsey wrote, We did have good times together, and you must understand from that scout troop, I began to learn some of the things that made it possible for me to do some of the research that we are now engaged in. And this would be after Kinsey was done with zoology and that he was on to sex research. And so Reisman goes on to say, clearly Kinsey was not referring to wasp collecting, but to the sexual research and experimentation that would eventually result in the publication of his male volume. And Kinsey was in contact with many young men throughout his professorship at Indiana University in his field research in zoology. And so now we are going to talk about a quote that comes from um, Jones in a uh, documentary that was done by Yorkshire Television called Kinsey's Pedophiles. Interviewed for the 1996 Yorkshire program, Jones describes how the two male students, Braylon and Coons, worked under the Kinsey supervision in 1934 through 35. Quote, there were numerous episodes, nudes and whatnot. There is an explicit photograph of Kinsey in the buff. On that trip, they engaged in masturbation sessions, group masturbation. Both of the young men were trying to keep Kinsey at arm's length. Asked what Braylon's wife thought about it, Jones recalled, I can tell you that she didn't like Alfred Kinsey. She responded that they were just kids from Mississippi and that Alfred Kinsey hurt them. And in his recent biography, Jones notes, Kinsey bathed with his students, striding about camp naked. You'd see him going to the bathroom and all that sort of thing, confided one student. He just take a leak right there in front of us. Professors simply did not engage in that sort of sexual behavior with their graduate students. Yet Kinsey seemed totally oblivious to sexual taboos, as though he was determined to flaunt them. Kinsey had become a sexual re rebel, manipulative and aggressive, a man who abused his professional authority and betrayed his trust as a teacher. Only a compulsive man would have taken such risk. And we will see throughout the course of this episode that this kind of flaunting of normal sexual behaviors and compulsive behavior on, Kinsey ends, on Kinsey's end is a very recurrent theme. So another telling of a story of Kinsey's relationship with his students is related by biographer Jones as he uh, relays what one of Kinsey's students had to say about him. He said, he would go naked if we were in a campground, Homer T. Rainwater recalls. He just didn't give a damn, nor did he show any inhibitions about his bodily functions. Kinsey's eagerness to talk about sex was more disconcerting after several nights. Rainwater discerned a pattern. Kinsey would begin by sharing intimate details about his own private life. Quote, he'd talk about his wife and what a good sex partner she was, and then he'd go from there. He had, he had a pretty wife, and apparently she was very accommodating, and he talked about that to us. I thought more than was appropriate. Much to Rainwater's embarrassment, Kinsey would then ask about his sex life. And so, Kinsey would go on to meet the only woman he was known to have a romantic relationship with, and that was Clara Bracken McMillan, whom he'd eventually marry and they would not go on a honeymoon. If I recall correctly, instead of going on a typical honeymoon, 
what they did is they went and they traversed a mountain in a rainstorm on their honeymoon. So that would kind of preclude any chances of consummating the relationship if the relationship had not already been consummated. And it's just kind of a peculiar thing to do on your honeymoon. But um, what most biographers say is that this was kind of like some sort of symbolic way of Kinsey testing Clara and uh, kind of seeing just um, how strong she was. But she passed the test and Macmillan would have four children, one of whom would die early. Uh, and Kinsey would take the family on nudist vacations in the mountains and have nudist magazines in home and shave naked in few, full view of the family. And so once again, this is just kind of um, typical of Kinsey, flouting, flouting normal sexual behaviors. And he would also take their sexual histories for his research. So that uh, had to be um, an interesting conversation, asking your children for their sexual histories for your sex research. But Kinsey and his family would attend church, but he refused to allow his children to be confirmed, which can only make one wonder, um, in conjunction with his atheism, if this church attendance was based in wanting to instill kind of the social values of the church on him, or more likely, in my opinion, it seems to be a way of lending credibility to Kinsey in the eyes of the community which would most certainly become helpful when he got involved with his sex research, which would uh, kind of upend things to a large extent in the, the society of the day. And so um, just kind of something else that uh, I believe this is Pomeroy, uh, not Pomeroy, that this is James H. Jones, his biographer, talks about in relation to Kinsey's atheism. A later incident, while Kinsey was mentoring his sexology disciples, further underscored his atheism. He and Pomeroy were talking about theological matters. Pomeroy, puzzled by the impression that Kinsey still entertained religious feelings, interjected, I've known you a long time, and I've never heard you talk this way. Do you really believe in God? Kinsey was irate and surprised that Pomeroy could have thought for an instant that he was a believer, and he said, don't be ridiculous. Of course not. And so this gives us a little bit of an idea of Kinsey's early life and background before he would come into sex research. And so now we are going to move on to the sexology period of Kinsey's life. And we will start with a quote from Jack Douglas, writing for the Rockford Institute in 1987. Alfred Kinsey asked questions and analyzed their answers statistically in ways which implicitly assumed that all forms of sexual outlets are the same in meaning, value, emotional power, consequences, and everything else. Kinsey literally reduced all human sexuality to the single dimension of orgasmic outlet. In his behaviorist metaphysics, the number of outlets alone has any meaning. His revolutionary zeal knew no bounds. His causal pronouncement on animalism shows the monomaniacal zealot at work. And so that kind of gives us a brief idea of where Kinsey was coming from with his sex research. And he didn't really put any emphasis on the uh, emotional value or the mental complexities that exist in sex. But to him, everything was kind of physical and the sole aim of sex was orgasm and this was really the only thing that uh, mattered nothing mental 
or uh, definitely not spiritual in relations to sex. And this is something that would kind of put him at odds with most of his peers outside of his immediate circle of sexology disciples underneath him. So in 1938, Kinsey was approved by Indiana University to teach a course on marriage. And the official story goes that Kinsey was asked by the university to teach this course and kind of was this, re, you know, reluctant to get into sex research or the zoologist becoming the, you know, kind of unwitting but taking the burden upon himself to do sex research just because of the scarcity of valid research that had been, that had been conducted on human sexuality. The class was initially restricted to engage or marry students with few exceptions, but eventually the criteria for taking the class was expanded. While most were unaware, Kinsey had more in mind than simply teaching a class on marriage. And as Jones would say, Kinsey merely substituted people for gall wasp. There can be no doubt that Kinsey intended to use the marriage course to launch a major, major study of human sexual behavior. The interview he's the interview he used had taken many months and quite possibly more than a year to structure. And so something that we'll see is that Kinsey is, as Jones said, kind of substituting gall wasp for people. And he is not very interested in kind of looking at the deeper, uniquely human complexities to sex, but just kind of views sex as this purely physical thing. And, um, the main outlet being orgasm, that this is kind of the purpose of sex. And while most histories of Kinsey paint a picture of a biologist, you know, thrown into the field of sex research by chance, we can really see a different picture when taking a closer look. Kinsey stated in his volume on male sexuality um, that he started taking histories in July of 1938, and that this is the same month that his marriage course was approved. And as Jones states about this, the interview he used on students at Indiana University during the summer of 1938 could not have been improvised. Undoubtedly, it had taken many months and quite possibly more than a year to structure. It seems certain that Kinsey invested years of reading and sex education to obtain the familiarity with human sexual behavior reflected by such a sophisticated interview. Kinsey had to find the approach and scope of his research before he took his first history. That he had committed to the memory of the interview's 350 questions offers additional evidence of careful preparation. And now we come to the interview portion of the podcast where we're going to talk about kind of how Kinsey would go about interviewing people and just, yeah, a little bit about that. So according to Jones, when assembling his team, Kinsey made sure to pick out young and insecure students, and one can kind of imagine why this might be, whose histories he would take. And Kinsey's co-authors even had to agree to be filmed in sexual activity. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see how this uh, is functionally, if not in actuality, a form of blackmail. And so we will definitely dive deeper into Kinsey and sexual blackmail as we get further into this. And Kinsey's team that he assembled were largely inexperienced students who were unpublished and without doctorates. The Rockefeller Foundation, who were in control of Kinsey's grants, would say, there has never been in this group any trained mathematical statistician who comes within gunshot of having the competence, training, and experience which are required. In Dr. Kinsey's own listing of his staff, he says that Mr. Clyde E. Martins continues in charge of the statistical handling of our data. His scientific stature has not as yet caused him even to be listed in American Men of Science, the latest edition which contains about 50,000 names. 
Dr. Kinsey must approve highly of him, for in 1951 he raised his salary by 36%. In his own diary record of a visit to Kinsey in July 1950, Dr. Gregg said under the heading of personnel, past and present needs remain unsatisfied in point of statistics. This fault, this admittedly absolutely basic fault, existed in the project in 1942. It has existed ever since. There is no promise whatsoever that it will cease to exist, and we do nothing about it. So, you know, this is kind of a, a, a letter, um, an evaluation of Kinsey, rather, I should say, by the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, they would continue to go on funding Kinsey after this. But this is kind of towards the end of their funding of Kinsey. And this actually comes to near the end of Kinsey's life, actually. And it's just kind of showing the dissatisfaction with the people um, who are funding Kinsey towards the end because they're beginning to realize the invalidity of his research and how he goes about conducting these interviews. Um, but more important to Kinsey than academic and scientific ability was whom he could trust. Pomeroy states, As usual, when we considered anyone we might hire, we took his sexual history first. Kinsey and I did this one together. When we were finished, Kinsey put down his pen and said, I don't think you want to work for us. But I do, the researcher insisted. Well, Kinsey observed, you have just said that premarital intercourse might lead to later difficulties in marriage, that extramarital relations would break up a marriage, that homosexuality is abnormal, and intercourse with animals ludicrous. Apparently, you already have all the answers. Why do you want to do research? And uh, so something that we see is that Kinsey, by conducting these histories, um, was kind of looking for people who already had certain ideas about sex before conducting his research. And also, it is important to note that when conducting these histories, that these could effectively be used over people um, to kind of instill behavior that Kinsey wanted, because there is always, you know, the idea that this guy knows all of my dark uh, secrets, so he would not be someone that I want to upset. And Kinsey is said to have used Pavlovian-style condition response techniques on his subordinate researchers. Kinsey would oscillate between, between responding to his research with kindness and anger and derision. And by being lauded one moment and scolded the next, Kinsey's team was always confused as to their standing with the professor, and this would lead them to compete for his favor as well as to the fear of retribution that they may face. Um, you know, so perhaps the most effective means of control was, you know, this fact that all the members of Kinsey's teams had to volunteer their own sexual histories, which not only served as a means of research, but as blackmail, as we've already stated. And often the histories of his team's members, spouses, and families would be requested as well. And so uh, Pomeroy says, In the old days, no one could have come to work for Kinsey without giving his history. It was a condition of employment, which few employees in the lower echelons resented. So uh, that's how Pomeroy at least sees it. But whether that's true, who knows? Um, and Pomeroy would also say, I think he liked secrets, that their possession gave him a sense of power. And there was no question that the histories did give him unique potential power. On the Indiana campus alone, there are at least 20 professors with homosexual histories unknown to anyone else, not to mention the numerous extramarital experiences recorded. With his intimate knowledge of the sexual lives of important people, Kinsey could have figuratively blown up the United States socially and politically.
<laughs> Perhaps he liked to feel sometimes that he was putting something over on the world. And it wasn't just professors at Indiana University who Kinsey was collecting these histories on. Well, the Institute hasn't revealed who they have collected histories on. We do know that there are many artists such as Jack Kerouac and uh, the guy who wrote Naked Launch, who it's uh, William Burroughs, who he would collect histories on. There was people involved in news who he would collect uh, histories on. So perhaps that that could explain why he uh, got so many favorable write-ups that along with, you know, Rockefeller Foundation control not only over the funding of Kinsey's research, but over much of the media as well, which perhaps we'll go over somewhat when we come to the Reese Committee section of this podcast. But anyways, so um, Kinsey was obsessive about the hygiene of his underlings, and he would insist that they showered every morning. And this is kind of an example of his compulsive behavior. Um, Dr. Judith Reisman says in her biography of Kinsey that Pomeroy hints that Kinsey used field trips and cleanliness demands developed years before with young Ralph Forrest as an excuse for watching and controlling the younger men in their bathing and other intimate activities. This is confirmed in Jones' biography. We also know from Jones' biography that Kinsey initiated field sexual activity at which his students balked at Grace risked him themselves and their careers. Uh, two of the members of Kinsey's inner circle, Pomeroy and Martin, were reported by Jones to be Kinsey's lovers. And it looks like my computer's battery is about to die, so let me figure that out, and I will be right back. All right, well, the globalists tried to kill my computer's battery in order to stop me from getting my message out, but I solved that. They're not going to stop us from bringing down the global ruling class. Uh, so, you know, the Bill Gates of the world better watch out because they're not going to get me with something so simple as, you know, making me think that my computer's plugged in and it's not. So I don't know who did that, what fed, but we're over it. We are back to bringing them down. So uh, where were we? We were talking about um, how Kenzie had some... Uh, some lovers, Pomeroy and Martin, who were researchers underneath him, some male lovers. And, uh, you know, so this is obviously something that's very interesting, not, not typical as a, a prerequisite in conducting research with somebody. But anyhow, um, let's go with kind of how Kenzie would be so persistent in conducting interviews with people and learn a little bit about that. And so here, James H. Jones is going to summarize an interview that he did with the Dean of Women at Indiana University, Kate Mueller, and kind of some of the things that made her feel uncomfortable about Kinsey and his persistence in interviewing people. So we will read this. For her part, Mueller had been worried about Kinsey's behavior for some time. In addition to fretting over the information and permissive attitudes he conveyed during interviews, she was concerned about the persistence with which he pursued female histories on campus. She had heard complaints on this score in the past, and she had no reason to doubt that the future would bring more. The basic problem, she maintained, was that Kinsey put too much pressure on students. If he got some members of a complete group, he wanted all of them. In her judgment, Kinsey crossed the line between soliciting and badgering when he attempted to draw in girls who were either reluctant or simply did not wish to give their histories. 
When he pursued them, Mueller declared, he ran into difficulties with parents and girls who objected, girls who were really scandalized, you see. So this was the conflict, quite simply, which Mr. Kinsey and I found each other facing. I felt very strongly that I could never ask the girls to give him interviews when they did not voluntarily want to do so. As we discussed this a little further, Mr. Kinsey became very angry with me, emotionally angry, and he shouted. Perhaps I shouted too, but he did not. Sh but he did shout at me. And as their conversation became more heated, Kinsey underwent a physical transformation. His face changed. He became more pale. He was really shaken by my refusal because I think that the only thing that he could endure was to could not endure was to be thwarted in his need for getting more cases. I was quite frightened by this, and I remember feeling that I was glad he could be overheard by Mr. Kirby, the associate dean, who was in the next office, because I thought, if I can't get him out quietly, at least he, she can rescue me. After a brief silence in which Kinsey appeared to be struggling to regain his composure, another outburst ensued. Kinsey, however, was not done. As nastily as he had treated her, he could not resist the temptation to add insult to fear before leaving. He did tell me I was unsuited for the job I had. He thought I ought to give him my own history, she said with a grimace. Choking back tears, she added. He went so far as to say I should have some treatment by a psychiatrist to correct my bad attitudes and so forth. So here we get, you know, just a little bit of a taste of how persistent that Kinsey was in conducting his interviews. And now we'll read some of the protocols for conducting interviews from the mail volume, which I think kind of highlight this. So, uh, protocol 13. Placing the burden of denial on the subject. The interviewer should not make it easy for a subject to deny his participation in any form of sexual activity. It is too easy to say no if he is simply asked whether he has ever engaged in a particular activity. We always assume that everyone has engaged in every type of activity. Consequently, we always begin by asking when they first engaged in such activity. It might be thought that this approach would bias the answer, but there is no indication that we get false admissions which uh, we can get into some of his uh, statistics later and how exactly he went about getting some of this information, but we will see um, that indeed probably a lot of his admissions were false admissions and that who he would go about interviewing um, did not truly represent um, American men and American women at this time in history, but rather that he, you know, kind of worked to fudge statistics in his favor in a changing the sexual mores of, of the time. But anyhow, protocol 18, forcing a subject. So there are some persons who offer to contribute histories in order to satisfy their curiosity, although they have no intentions of, intentions of giving an honest record of their sexual activities. As soon as one recognizes such a case, he should denounce this subject with considerable severity, and the interviewer should refuse to proceed with the interviewer. Such an attack on a dishonest subject is quite contrary to the usual rules for interviewing, and a procedure which we at first hesitated, hesitated to employ in the present study. We have, however, decided that it is a necessary technique in dealing with some individuals, particularly some older teenager males and some females in underworld groups. Failure to command the situation in these cases would lower the community respect for the investigator and make it impossible for him to secure honest answers from others. So here we see that... Um, when you are being interviewed by Kinsey, that you are guilty of everything until you can prove yourself otherwise, and that um, he encourages people conducting interviews of people's sexual histories to be forceful, and that he has no problem with, you know, 
forcing a subject. Anyhow, um, I guess we should delve a little bit deeper into the uh, pornography and blackmail angle of Kinsey's so-called research. Uh, Waldell Pomeroy says, the public would have been astounded and dis, dis uh, my bad folks, the public would have been astounded and disbelieving to know the names of the eminent scientists who appeared at the Institute from time to time to examine our work and talk with Kinsey and who volunteered before they left to be photographed in some kind of sexual activity. Um, and now we are going to, uh, so, um, this quote comes from Earl Marsh and Paul Gevard, um, Kinsey co-authors. Um, Kinsey decided to film people having sex using the attic of his own house as a location. I was in some, having some sexual contact, and many of us were, and it was all done in secrecy, of course. At that time, we would have lost our funding. And it's important to keep in mind that this was a time in American history where pornography was entirely illegal, so the idea of filming people in um, doing all matters of sexual activity as they did at the uh, Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University under Alfred Kinsey was not only something that would have offended the sensibilities of uh, the higher-ups at Indiana University in a lot of cases, but that could have honestly opened him up to all kinds of legal problems. But at Indiana University's Wiley Hall, they instituted a soundproof laboratory. And this would be the place where Kinsey and his team would film all manner of sexual activities, including Kinsey's, uh, you know, basement. So, uh, Pomeroy would say of this, we were eager in the 1940s and early 1950s to supplement our interview studies with controlled laboratory observations. Uh, in an early point in the development of our research, Kinsey began to feel a certain impatience with the fact that the data we were collecting was necessarily secondhand. Like any scholar, Kinsey yearned for original sources. And it occurred to him that we ought to observe at first hand some of the behavior we were recording. Kinsey began looking for opportunities to observe. He was acutely aware of the serious dangers implicit in such work and proceeded cautious, cautiously, knowing that he could expect little understanding of what, was, what he was doing if it was ever disclosed. Not even many scientists could be expected to condone it. Few people would believe in the scientific purity of his motives. Indeed, I think that many people would uh, be hesitant to uh, believe in the scientific purity of his motives, even today when um, we don't live in, I don't know, what you could say is a lot less repressive or whatever than it was back then. However, um, this comes from uh, Christensen, and it says, the lab, as we all called it, presented a uniform, trim, antiseptic appearance, all well locked. At Wiley Hall, where the Institute was housed on the ground floor, windows were carefully fitted with strong metal grills. All doors to private offices had to be soundproofed, and special locks were installed to ensure privacy in discussion and interviewing. Um, and in Kinsey's Pedophiles, the Yorkshire, Yorkshire documentary that um, 
we have already mentioned with which if you want to learn a little bit more about uh kinsey and specifically his relationship to pedophilia it is a uh, rough watch but i do recommend it you can find it on youtube if you search hard enough it's many places online um but james h jones kinsey's biographer who was pro kinsey i might add um would state that kinsey and the people who were close to him were very proud of the sex filming and the risk that felon behavior entailed. The filming that goes on involves both staff members themselves and invited guests. And Pomeroy would go on to say that himself that other researchers viewed this with the same detached interest that would have they would have observing any other animals in the act. Which um, one wonders if that is truly even possible to... Uh, watch this with the same detached um, behaviors that one would do when observing animals copulating for scientific motives. I personally have my doubts to this, especially when you consider uh, just not necessarily the proclivities, uh, the sexual proclivities of people at the Kinsey Institute, but their relationship to sex, because as we will go into later, Kinsey wasn't only a compulsive masturbator, but he was, uh, you know, we've already kind of stated that he was a bit of an exhibitionist and that um, he was, he's big into masochism, as we'll get into later. And he generally seems, aside from his research, to be rather sex obsessed. And so I'm truly wondering um, if they're watching all of this with a detached nature. But I guess everybody can draw their own conclusions. But um, Kinsey would also film pornography, blackmail, research, however you want to frame it, in the attic of his family home with uh, cinematographers Bill Dallenbeck, Clarence Strip, and his colleague Paul Gebbard. And uh, Pomeroy describes one of these sessions where he says that Kinsey would have moved, would move quietly around the room, never intruding, occasionally whispering a direction to Bill Dahlenbeck. He always complimented the subjects after a session and reassured them about the quality and the value of what they had done. If they had failed to perform satisfactorily whatever act was involved, Kinsey would say, you did very well, just great. On one occasion, the subject went on and on with the act until the camera began to overheat and Bill knew he was about to run out of film. He made a despairing gesture to Kinsey, indicating what was happening. Proc leaned forward towards the subject and said gently, um, If you would just come now. Oh, sure, the subject said, and immediately came to orgasm just as the film ran out. The man had misunderstood and thought Kinsey wanted a lengthy sequence of masturbation, which he was prepared to keep up indefinitely. Um, and Kinsey would only hire people for the most part who gave him the primary re um, sources that he so desperately uh, sought. So, yeah, he would want the people working beneath him. And this goes back to the blackmail to have been filmed in various manners of sexual activities. And often this would be with people's spouses or... Uh, girlfriends or boyfriends or whoever at the time and so it is very easy to see how this would not only help Kinsey's so-called research but I think more so how he can keep control over the people underneath him because once he has these films um, I think that it'd be very difficult to go against Kinsey in any way because 
he doesn't even have to explicitly state, which who knows if he did or didn't, but that he has this kind of power over you. Kinsey would, um, yeah, so Kinsey only hired people who gave him the primary sources that he so desperately sought, all in the name of research. Uh, perhaps that's something that viewers can try. I'm just kidding, but yeah, come on. Let me film you uh, masturbating or us, us having sex. It's for my research. Kinsey would, um, so Kinsey's films were not limited to what would be considered vanilla by today's standards even, and certainly not at the time what was considered vanilla, because, I mean, really any pornography wasn't vanilla at the time. But um, these would also include extreme sadomasochistic acts, among other things. Dr. Judith Reithsman claims in her book that she received a letter from Kinsey's co-author, Paul Gevard, while he was still the director of the Kinsey Institute, which reads, since sexual experimentation with human, infants, and children is illegal, we've had to depend upon other sources of data. Some of these were parents, mostly college-educated, who observed their children and kept notes for us. A few were nursery school owners or teachers. Other were homosexual males interested in older but still prepubertal children. One was a man who had numerous sexual contacts with male and female infants and children, and Bingo's scientific bent kept detailed records of each encounter. Some of these sources have added to their written or verbal report photographs, and in a few instances, cinema. The techniques involved included adult-child contacts, chiefly manual or oral. So uh, this is what Kinsey researcher Paul Gebbard apparently wrote in a letter to Dr. Judith Reisman, the anti-Kinsey biographer. But um, whether or not this letter is true, I haven't seen the letter with my own eyes, but this is what is published in uh, Reisman's book, Kinsey's Crimes and Consequences. And... Uh, if it is to be believed, that is pretty horrific. And I don't find that to be too unbelievable when we come to things that we'll, that we'll get into later. Um, and so here is another quote. The Kinsey Institute began its live obscenity production prior to publication of the 1948 male volume. Kinsey received Rockefeller monies for his libraries. Oh, it is noon here. So perhaps I will pause this until the siren is done going off because I don't know if you guys can hear it, but I don't think that that makes for great podcasting. So the globals were trying to take me down with their with their sirens, but what they don't realize is that if they uh, try to take me down again with their sirens, that 1776 will commence again. Man, I gotta work on my Alex Jones impression. My Alex Jones impression has really dwindled in ability, but... Back to the pervert prince, the pervert pioneer, the pervert priest, if you will, Alfred Kinsey. So where were we before I was interrupted by the noon siren? Um, I think that I was going to uh, read this quote from Judas Reisman. So the Kinsey Institute began its live obscenity productions prior to publication of the 1948 male volume. Kinsey received Rockefeller monies for his library activities in 1946. Just as Kinsey paid Martin out of his own pocket until 1941, so did he apparently pay photographer Dahlenbeck personally until the Rockefeller funds arrived. Then both men appear to have become permanent members of the Institute staff. An expensive film equipment was purchased. 
It is likely that some of the Rockefeller largesse was earmarked for the pornographic productions. After all, they were a passion which Kinsey eagerly shared with visiting scholars from the Foundation, who James Jones asserts became hooked on Kinsey. Moreover, in May 7, 1951, a letter to Warren Weaver complains that Kinsey's library of erotic literature and a collection of pictures and other art objects of erotic significance were essentially funded by Rockefeller. Writing in 1951, Weaver recalled his 1946 objection to the funding of Kinsey's erotica. The letter phase has become sufficiently important so that they have installed and equipped a complete photographic laboratory and have a full-time photographer. I almost said full-time photographer, who receives $4,800 per year. This library was started with the aid of a grant additional to this, additional to his then general support, made directly from the Rockefeller Foundation to Kinsey and for the specified purpose. This specified purpose. As a matter of record, I remind you that I opposed that grant when it was discussed in officers' conference. Now this library art aspect of the work surely requires out of his total general budget more than the total amount the Rockefeller Foundation is contributing. I contend that this is perfectly realistic to say that the Rockefeller Foundation is paying for this collection of erotica and for the activities directly associated with it, and I say further that I don't think that we need to or ought to. And, uh... Kinsey always made sure that these pictures of himself remained in his control, obviously, and uh, did not want other people having any of this of him, but he also wanted pictures and video and what have you of everybody else. So kind of a double standard, but once again, blackmail is better in your own hands than in the hands of other people, which is obvious and I got some stuff here on the statistical errors and deceptions that exist in Kinsey's work, but I think in the interest of time that we will kind of skip over a lot of the notes that I have in here, but we will um, talk a little bit about some of it just because it is important um, in evaluating who Kinsey is and his research in particular. And it's important to keep in mind that both with the male and female volume that this was presented to the public as, you know, this is the sexual behavior of the average male or of the average female. And uh, it just completely wasn't representative. And there was good reason for that. And that's because, you know, Kenzie was on this personal crusade of his and uh, that was, you know, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And perhaps we will get into some of the motives the Rockefeller Foundation had in funding Kinsey, you know, but I don't think that this is a case of Kinsey running wild with Rockefeller Foundation money unbeknownst to them because they knew the problems that existed not only in uh, on the statistical end of his research, but just, you know, the, the legal and the ethical ramifications of his research. So I do think that this is uh, exactly what the higher-ups at the Rockefeller Foundation were wanting to get out of Kinsey. But anyways, to some of the statistical deceptions that exist. The main way that Kinsey went about uh, getting information to suggest things that he wanted was by the people he would choose to interview and the places he would choose to find people to interview. And he did not go and seek out normal people, but he would often, I mean, he went to prisons and he interviewed not just criminals, but sex offenders. He interviewed a lot of prostitutes. 
He interviewed a lot of people from kind of uh, the more underground elements of society at the time and kind of neglected to conduct interviews with normal people. And there's also, you know, the problem of uh, the way he went in about interviewing people because they all took, you know, volunteer interviewees. So you're going to have more open people and actually like the famous psychologist Abraham Maslow, if you're interested in the, you know, kind of statistical errors in Kinsey, um, heavily criticized how Kinsey went about getting this information as well as a bunch of other people. Perhaps in the show notes, I will put some uh, resources you can go and look into how exactly it is that uh, Kinsey made these, in my opinion, very deliberate statistical deceptions in his research, but at the very least was a a poor researcher. But just some things to kind of uh, shortly summarize it. In his database, over 1,400 criminals and sex offenders are categorized as normal. And even among these prisoners used in the database, there is a tendency to lean towards the sexually abnormal. And Kinsey associate Paul Gebbard said, At the Indiana State Farm, we had no plan of sampling. We simply sought out sex offenders. And after a time, avoided the more common types of offenses, statutory rape, and directed our efforts towards the rare types of offenses. In the early stages of the research, when much interviewing was being done at Indiana correctional institutions, Dr. Kinsey did not view the inmates as a discrete group that should be differentiated from people outside. Instead, he looked upon the institutions as reservoirs of potential interviewees, literally captive subjects. This viewpoint resulted in there being no difference in our 1948 volume between persons with and without prison experience. The great majority of the prison group was collected omnivorously without any sampling plan. We simply interviewed all who volunteered, and when this supply of subjects was exhausted, we solicited other inmates, essentially at random. Kinsey never kept a record of refusal rates, the proportion of those who were asked for an interview, but who refused. And so, while the number of males used in the production of the male volume is unknown and could mean, but what this could mean, and uh, Reisman gets into this in her book, Kinsey, Crimes and Consequences, and in some of her other books on Kinsey as well, which she's by, you know, no means uh, unbiased. She is very anti-Kinsey and very um, anti-sexual revolution in, uh, in, in the first place, so, you know. I guess if that is not your your take on things, that she is very heavily traditionalist, you know, and I certainly don't endorse everything she said, but she does point out a lot of good things when talking about the statistical deception of Kinsey's research, but uh, she goes into her book of how this means that over a third of the men, according to how she breaks down numbers as they appear in um, the book that we know in the male volume, that that over a third of the men who were interviewed could have been, you know, criminals or even criminal sex offenders, and that Kinsey would extrapolate from this largely, uh, for lack of a better word, deviant sample, sexually criminal sample, onto the whole American public. Uh, Reisman says, Kinsey claimed that convicted criminals, including sex offenders, were no different than most men. They had merely been caught, including in his human male samples were incarcerated pedophiles, pederast, homosexual males, boy prostitutes, and other sexual riffraff. Yet the team regularly wrote and testified to the average nature of their male sample. Just like Dad, Kinsey co-author Paul Gebbard admitted as much. 
Kinsey did mix male prison inmates in with his sample used in sexual behavior in the human male. As to generalizing to a wider population, in his first volume, Kinsey did generalize to the entire U.S. population. See for one example the table on page 188 and 220 where he clearly extrapolates to the U.S. Subsequently, he realizes there and no such extrapolation is found in his second volume. And uh, a lot of these same uh, ways of statistical deception exist in uh, the female volume as well. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, he would just had a tendency to interview uh, prostitutes, drug addicts, people who were in prison for sexual offenses, um, and, and, and all other kinds of uh, portions of society that for the most part would not be considered normal and were probably not entirely represented of the American male and the American female as Kinsey and his uh, researchers portrayed to the public. But with that out the way, let's go to Kinsey and the Rockefellers or the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, the primary funders of the Kinsey Institute were Indiana University, followed by the Rockefeller Foundation, and by the time the 60s rolled around, Playboy and others in the pornography industry. And Kinsey states in his mail volume, The pre present volume is a progress report from a case history study on human sex behavior. The study has been underway during the past nine years. Throughout these years, it had the sponsorship and support of Indiana University, and during past, the past six years, the support of the National Research Council's Committee for Research on Problems of Sex, with funds granted by the Medical Division of the Rockefeller Foundation. It is a fact-finding survey in which an attempt is being made to discover what people do sexually and what factors account for differences in sexual behavior. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and the Rockefeller Foundation's statement filed with the committee explained, and this comes from Renee A. Warmser in his book, Foundations, Their Power and Their Influence, which was uh, written by, uh, I believe, if memory serves me, connect that Renee A. Warmser had um, some, he, he worked on the on the Reese Committee, and uh, which was a uh, committee that was brought together in the U.S. to talk about the outsized influence of tax-free foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation on influence media and public opinion and academia and the political sphere. And I could do a whole series of episodes alone just on the Reese Committee and a lot of the things that they dug up. But Kinsey was mentioned in the Reese, Reese Committee. Um, but anyhow, so this comes from Rene A. Wormser in his book, Foundations. The Rockefeller Foundation statement filed with the committee explained that funding the Kinsey studies, in 1931 it became interested in systematic support for studies in sexual physiology and behavior. Its works in these area was chiefly in connection with the Committee for Research and Problems of Sex of the National Research Council, to which by 1954 the foundation had granted one million seven hundred and fifty-five thousand in annual grants, running from seventy-five thousand to two hundred and forty thousand dollars. Beginning about nineteen forty-one, a considerable portion of these funds was supplied to Dr. Kinsey's study, and one grant was made directly to Dr. Kinsey. The work of the National Research Council produced some results of truly noteworthy importance. However, the much publicized bestseller Kinsey's studies, based 
base an advocacy of criminal and social reform on the very unscientific material which Dr. Kinsey had collected and permitted to be widely distributed. And so uh, Manfred Guttmacher said of the Rockefellers influencing legal opinion, in 1950 the American Law Institute began the monumental task of writing a model penal code. I am told that a quarter of a century earlier the Institute had approached the Rockefeller Foundation for the funds needed to carry out this project, but at that time Dr. Alan Gregg, a man of great wisdom, counseled the Foundation to wait that the behavioral sciences were on the threshold of development to the point at which they could be of great assistance. Apparently, the Institute concluded that the time had arrived. And why this matter is that after the Rockefellers kind of began to bring down their funding of Kinsey, they switched over to funding the American Law Institute and the Monopedal Code, and this is kind of how they began to influence laws on um, all, all kinds of things. But a lot of the time, as we will get into later, um, Kinsey's research was used as um, a basis for repealing a lot of the laws or harshness of penalties when it came to sex. And this wasn't just things like, um, you know, legal penalty, penalties for homosexuality or pornography, um, you know, which... Uh, many people today would be in favor for, especially, you know, something like uh, homosexuality. Uh, you know, there's more debate with, with some of the things like, uh, you know, whether uh, pornography should be legal or, uh, or if not legal, you know, the benefits and cons of, of pornography, but also even things like uh, the laws regarding penalties for for rape, where there used to be much more harsh penalties prior to Kinsey and his research being used by people like uh, the American Law Institute, groups, I should say, like the American Law Institute. So Dr. Alan Gregg, the uh, man at the Rockefeller Foundation, primarily responsible for assessing Kinsey and the funds that he was to be allotted, mentions that Kinsey's third volume was to be a legal volume. And uh, Gregg says, Past and present needs remain unsatisfied in point of anatomy, physiology, psychology, and statistics, and they might be available for the staff. Kinsey believed he should add to the staff now so as to pre prepare for volume three, the legal volume. He has in mind Alice Field of New York, a woman with legal training who is now in the magistrate's courts, Harriet Pipple, now in Morris Ernst's office, and Paul Toppin at New York University who has degrees in law and sociology would be excellent in the field of European laws and interstate laws relating to sex. And Reese Committee Council and, uh, yeah, so Rene Wormser was uh, involved with the Reese Committee. He was part of the council and the author of Foundations said, the Rockefeller Foundation statement filed with the committee explained its connection to the Kinsey studies in this way. In 1931, it became interested in systematic support for studies in sexual physiology and behavior. Its work in these areas was chiefly in connection... Oh, I already read that. I'm, I apologize for that, folks. Um, sociologist Dr. Albert Hobbs warned the Reese Committee, Social scientists should exercise the greatest care in informing the public when their work is not truly scientific. The very term social science implies that their conclusions are unassailable because they are scientifically arrived at. There is the constant danger, then, that laymen will take these conclusions as axiomatic basis for social action. Note, for example, the remarkable number of writings which appeared after the Rockefeller Foundation supported Kinsey's study. 
With the assumedly scientific character of Dr. Kinsey's work behind us, we had such things offered to the public as this one by Anne G. Freegood in the September 1953 issue of Harper's. The desert, in this case, is our current code of laws governing sexual activities and the background of Puritan tradition regarding sex under which this country still to some extent operates. And Wormser would write on the Reese Committee stunning, stunting their research into Kinsey and his relationship to the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, so what Wormser says about them trying to squash any uh, further research into Kinsey and his relationship to the Rockefeller Foundation. Most mysterious and disturbing was how the investigation of the Kinsey data was thwarted by a combined effort of the Republicans and the Democrats in that administration. Congressman Wayne Hayes of Ohio particularly would not allow a proposed study of the Kinsey reports. Dr. Edinger had dug up some significant materials about the Foundation's support of the Kinsey projects. This brought Mr. Hayes to a steaming rage, and he asked to see our entire Kinsey file. It was produced for him, and he angrily declared to Mr. Norman Dodd, the committee's research director, that we are to go no further with this particular investigation, contending that every member of Congress would be against doing so. Neither Mr. Dodd nor I could see any reason why Dr. Kinsey's foundation-supported project should not bear as much scrutiny as any other foundation operation. But Mr. Hayes then introduced another element into the situation. Our appropriations for 1954 had at the same time not yet been approved, and Mr. Hayes stated emphatically to Mr. Dodd that he would oppose any further appropriation to our committee unless the Kinsey investigation was dropped. His unreasoning opposition to any study of these projects was so great that he threatened to fight against the appropriation on the floor of the House. Fearful, Mr. Dodd concluded that Mr. Hayes must be appeased. He suggested, therefore, that Mr. Hayes take the entire Kinsey file and lock it in his personal safe so he would know the material could not be used without express consent of the committee. This Mr. Hayes did. The file remained in his safe throughout the hearings. He may still have it. And so now I will read a quote by a, another controversial person. And once again, with none of these people do, I fully support their views, especially not this guy. But I do think that it is um, that this quote is worth reading. Um, this comes from E. Michael Jones, um, who's talking about Kinsey's Rockefeller Foundation benefactors, Robert Yerkes, Dr. Alan Gregg, and George Kerner. Corner. What is clear in the book is how Kinsey used sex to control the people around him. In this regard, the controllers at the Rockefeller Foundation, Yerkes, Corner, and Gregg, got more than they bargained for. The method was fairly simple. To begin with, all the above-mentioned men had jettisoned religion in favor of science as a better guide as to how to live life. This naturally led them to see sex as just one more field of study, which led them to ignore its power over them. Hence, when Kinsey jerked their chains, they were unaware of what was going on until it was too late. In this, Kinsey played Dionysius to their Pentheus. All the while they saw he was in their power, when all he had to do was ask if they wanted to see the women dancing naked on the mountainside to turn their tables on them. Which is precisely what Kinsey refined into the standard treatment of those who came to visit at the Institute in Bloomington. I want you to see our library and our collections of erotic materials in sufficient detail to understand what bearing they have on the research project as a whole, Kinsey wrote to Alan Gregg, director of the Medical Science Division of the Rockefeller Foundation and the man who held the purse strings. And on February 6, 1947, Gregg arrived in Bro Bro Bloomington. Like Pentheus, 
arriving on the mound to watch the women dance naked. Kinsey, Jones tells us, took obvious delight in showing his visitors various books, photographs, and drawings, which is not hard to understand because he understood that this was the simplest way to draw Greg under his control as a supporter of his research. The culmination of every trip to Bloomington was, of course, the moment when Kinsey took his victim's sexual history. Actually, some of Kinsey's willing victims then went on to allow themselves to be photographed while engaged in sexual activity, but this was the exception, and not the rule. Yerkes had done this before Greg arrived in Bloomington, and afterward, no matter how shabbily Kinsey treated him, Yerkes felt obliged to support him. The word blackmail springs most immediately to mind. Kinsey took sexual histories as a way of gaining power over people and scientists. Those who felt that sexual morality was an outdated remnant of a bygone era were his easiest picking in many ways. The threat of blackmail was never far from the practice of taking sexual histories, which is probably why, in addition to his prurient interest in the subject matter, Kinsey was so avid to take them. His use of sex as a way of controlling people was not limited to foundation executives. He did the same thing to the press in preparation for the release of the mail volume. Reporters were invited to Bloomington, softened up by being shown pornography, then asked to sign a contract, which would allow Kinsey to read any article they wrote before it was published, in the interest, of course, of scientific accuracy. To ensure final control over this willing group of enlightened thinkers, Kinsey persuaded them to give their sexual histories. Then, in the event that one of the journalists would somehow come to his senses and write something unfavorable, Kinsey had a wealth of information on the most intimate details of his life that could be used against him. And to finish off this section on the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, their financial backing of Kinsey and Kinsey taking the sexual histories as, you know, probably a form of blackmail on people at the Rockefeller Foundation, like, you know, Alan Greggs and Robert Yerkes and all these people. Reisman writes, In the wake of the Reese investigation, Dean Rusk, then president of the Rockefeller Foundation and later secretary of state, terminated the foundation's financial support of Kinsey's sex research. Kinsey had served his purpose. The foundation had shifted its funds to the American Law Institute. There, Kinsey's research would be put to use to erode existing laws protecting marriage and the family and to craft more lenient sex offender laws via the American Law Institute's model penal code. On April 25, 1955, the American Law Institute released its first model penal code draft modeled in large part on Kinsey's recommendations, which helped to alter and liberally revise the American sex offender laws and penalties. And so Kinsey would go on to have a great influence on the culture at large and the laws that would be put in place in the wake of Kinsey's so-called scientific findings. And uh, Gore Vidal would describe Kinsey as the most famous man in America, the world, for about a decade. Now, uh, that perhaps might be a little bit hyperbolic or could definitely be debated. But what is not debatable is that Kinsey had a great influence, both legally and on the culture. And uh, one of these people who he had a great influence on was Hugh Hefner. So Hugh Hefner remained a virgin until he was engaged. And the first person who he had sex with was his fiance at the time. And it wouldn't be until he read the male volume by Kinsey that he would kind of have this awakening into the way that he viewed sex and its role in society. And Hefner would say 
that if Kinsey was that Kinsey was the prophet and that he was his pamphleteer and uh, the Playboy uh, <laughs> Empire, I guess you could say, would uh, go on to support Kinsey, not just in the things that they published in their writings, but in their uh, financially. And uh, we could go on and on with uh, both Kinsey's cultural influence and his influence over the American Law Institute and their model penal code and how this changed the, uh, not only the cultural landscape, but even the legal landscape. And, uh, you know, obviously it can be debated, you know, uh, what laws that were repealed or the penalty lesson for were uh, what it was a good thing for or was a bad thing for. But it's just important to keep in mind um, just how much influence Kinsey exactly had over all of this. And uh, now another thing that I'll just kind of touch on tangentially. Um, I have so many notes, but I want to keep this from becoming a three or four hour podcast. Now I was wanting to kind of wrap this subject all up in one podcast because, uh, you know, while a long extensive series could be done on Kinsey, I'd like to move on to things that are honestly a bit more fun. Maybe the next episode will be like on a cult infiltration of the Catholic church or the moon landing or something that's a bit more fun. And as we'll see, it's about to, uh, We've already t touched on some rough stuff, but it's about to get a whole lot more rough here in a second. But um, just to kind of touch on Kinsey's view of women's, um, Kinsey's often associated with, you know, liberation and specifically sexual liberation. But he had a very negative view of women. He kind of uh, didn't have a very high view of motherhood. It's not something that really... I, to, to my knowledge, is even mentioned in the whole female volume that uh, he wrote about female sexuality. And it's, to him, it seems like uh, motherhood is completely divorced from sex or child-rearing um, in, in general. Because, you know, for Kinsey, sex is all about the orgasm. And Kinsey just kind of has this view that, like, hmm... What would be the uh, best way to explain it? I guess I'll just read this quote from James H. Jones. That essentially he had characterized women as undersexed moralists who served as willing agents of social control. Indeed, he had repeatedly discounted both their interest in sex and their capacity for high rates of sexual outlets. He saw women as largely uninterested in sex, morally pure, and devoted to reforming men. Kinsey believed that women were simply not as sexually responsive as men. But, um, yeah, he just kind of viewed women as, James H. Jones said, undersex moralists who serve as willing agents of social control. And uh, in Kinsey's mind, this was by no means a good thing. So anyways, we will now move on to our next section. And it's going to be where things start to get rough, to say the least. And this is going to be about Kinsey, his connection to pedophilia, and his connection to Nazis, and specifically the pedophile Nazi 
George Von Balusek, who, uh, yeah, so just strap in, buckle your seatbelts. We're about to go for a ride. If you do not want to hear some pretty intense things, now would be a good time to uh, drop out or maybe just try to skip forward in the podcast until we are past all of this. But it is very important into talking about Kinsey and exactly what it was that he was up to. And so uh, here is something that fellow Kinsey Institute researcher Waldell Pomeroy said. Kinsey pointed out that when the nation and the FBI were calling heinous crimes against children were things that appeared in a fair number of our total histories, and in only a small number of cases was public attention ever aroused or the police involved. Kinsey numbered himself among those who contended that, as far as the so-called molestation of children was concerned, a great deal more damage was done to the child by adult hysteria. So this is something that will continue to uh, keep coming about in Kinsey's research that the true damage that is done in cases of child molestation is not the, uh, the molestation itself and the psychic trauma that it most definitely uh, causes in victims of this type of sexual abuse, but that the real psychic trauma came from how, you know, parents, peers, teachers, whoever responded to uh, these cases of molestation. And so that the real damage is done, not in the act itself, which I think everybody listening to this would uniformly say is evil and wrong, but that the real damage to victims of child molestation comes from society's attitudes in regard to this subject. Kinsey in the female volume says that if a child were not culturally conditioned, it is doubtful if it would be disturbed by sexual approaches. It is difficult to understand why a child, except for its cultural conditioning, should be disturbed at having its genitalia touched or disturbed at seeing the genitalia of other persons or disturbed at even more specific sexual contacts. And in chapter 5 of Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, Kinsey says that not only kids, but infants have the capacity for orgasm, something that he will contend throughout all of his work. As disgusting as it is, is that children are sexual from birth, essentially, and that infants can be sexual. And, you know, just absolutely disgusting. Um... Kinsey said, erotic arousal could be subjected to precise instrumental measurements if objectively among scientists and public respect for scientific research allowed such laboratory investigation. So that is what Kinsey and his team would have done at um, his behest. And uh, as we'll see, maybe not the researchers directly underneath him, but Kinsey will um, employ pedophiles that he would find to conduct so-called research. Um, the male volume reports somewhere between 317 and 1739 boys undergoing sexual stimulation starting at age 15 months old with some subjects reaching up to the teenage years. So what do we know about the people who collected this erotic arousal daddle um, that they would do with a stopwatch? And if you don't believe me, um, you can go look at the male volume itself. I believe that the, uh, I mean, if you look up Kinsey table 34, but in the male volume, it starts with either table 30 or table 31, where they collect 
uh, data on, you know, childhood and infant sexuality. Um, and so, let me see where I am at here. Um, to collect this arousal data with a stopwatch. So what do we know about how he collected this arousal data? Better data on pre-adolescent climax comes from histories of adult males who've had sexual contacts with younger boys and who, with their adult backgrounds, are able to recognize and interpret the boy's experience. Unfortunately, not all the subjects with such contacts in their histories were questioned on this point of pre-adolescent reactions, but of our adult male subjects have observed such orgasms. Some of these adults are technically trained persons who have kept diaries or other records which have been put at our disposal, and from them we have secured information on 317 pre-adolescents who were either observed in self-masturbation or were observed in contact with boys or other adults. And explanatory notes on table 30, which claim to show the orgasmic capability of children and infants, says that all data based on memory of our older subjects, except in the column entitled data from other subjects in the latter case, original data gathered by certain of our subjects were made available for us in the present volume. Um, I'm going to just skip over some of this because truly a lot of it is disgusting. And I want to just uh, keep this simply to what is relevant to the discussion at hand. Um, so we can gather more information on the type of people that Kinsey had pro that had provided Kinsey with this so-called data on early sexual growth and activity. The Yorkshire, Yorkshire Television broadcasted a documentary entitled Kinsey's Pedophiles, which showed how Kinsey and his team enlisted pedophiles to take notes of their sexual abuse of young children and then give this information over to the Institute. And something that we will see here in just a little bit is um, that Kinsey not only collected this information from pedophiles, but would even encourage pedophiles to collect more information and uh, would even tell the Nazi pedophile we'll get into to stay safe out there. <laughs> oh, okay. So in the documentary, James Jones comments on one of these men who was often referred to as Mr. X, but was truly a government-employed land server and surveyor and prolific child abuser named Rex King. Quote, Kinsey relied upon King for the chapter on childhood sexuality in the male volume. I think that he was in the presence of pathology at large, and Kinsey elevated to, you know, the realm of scientific information. What should have been dismissed as unreliable, self-serving data provided by a predatory pedophile. I don't have any doubt in my mind that man wreaked havoc in a lot of lives. Many of his victims were infants, and Kinsey in that ch chapter himself gave a pretty graphic description of their response to what he calls sexual stimulation. If you read those words, what he's talking about is kids who are screaming, kids who are protesting in every way, and that they can see the fact that their bodies or their persons are being violated. Jones would respond to the Kinsey Institute statement that children didn't complain about the abuse by saying, how did they know that they didn't complain? The person who is rendering that information is the same person who abused them. It seems to me that they have as much credibility as a rapist would have, saying that the victim enjoyed the rape. And uh, once again, I'm just going to skip over some of these notes, just because some of this is so heinous. If you want to get some of the nitty-gritty details of this, you can go ahead and look into the documentary that, as I said before, is on YouTube and can be found other places online. Kinsey's Pedophiles. Um, that was done for Yorkshire television. But anyhow, this Rex King was a prolific pedophile who Kinsey um, had personal contact with, 
who would correspond with notes, and he encouraged Rex King to take data with a stopwatch and to keep meticulous notes on his abuse of children. And so, um, let me see where I am in my notes. Um, pornographer or pornographer, psychologist and Kinsey researcher, I believe that this is Pomeroy said that you don't find out about what pedophiles think and do unless you talk to a man who's seen, who has been a pedophile. There is nothing like going to first sources and photographing, you see. I photographed everything in the human animal when we could arrange it. If the FBI were to come, demand to see our histories, I would destroy them first. So that makes you really wondered what he was um, talking about exactly. Um, and something that the Institute will, will claim, but I think is dubious at best, is that most all of the information that was collected on childhood sexuality came from this Rex King, who was, uh, at least if you believe uh, Rex King in his own words, from what we know about him, was a very, very, very prolific pedophile. And one wonders if the... Uh, number of children that he abused are true as we are told to believe that um how one could even be insulated from being caught being as prolific of a pedophile as uh rex king allegedly was but as we will see rex king was not the only pedophile who kinsey had contacts contact with. So just when you think that it can't get any more grotesque and debaucherous, we come to Dr. Oh, I accidentally said George von Balusek earlier. It was Dr. Fritz von Balusek, the Nazi pedophile, who would send data from his field research to the Kinsey Institute. And what's interesting to note is that Balusek was not only was not the only Nazi that uh, Kinsey had correspondence with. But he was also what Reisman refers to as sexual collaborators with George Sylvester Virick. And Virick was rumored to be the son of Kaiser Wilhelm I and would later be imprisoned in the United States from 1942 to 1947 for being a Nazi agent. And, you know, I'm not saying that that Virick is a pedophile. We're just simply mentioning Virick because this is not the only Nazi who... uh, Kinsey would have contact with and uh, really makes you wonder about something not only when they uh, keep pedophiles as acquaintances but when they also have more than a I mean one Nazi is enough but um, you know now we're getting into multiple Nazis who Kinsey had correspondence with and Virick was also a writer and he would start two different publications one of which was the International and this would be edit- edited for a time by uh, none other than Alistair Crowley. It's so interesting how when I do research to any of uh, these parapolitical subjects from this time period, I mean, you can't throw a stone without it hitting Alistair Crowley in his big bald dome, it seems. Um, and so we will see that F- Crowley will factor later on into uh, our discussion of Alfred Kinsey. So just keep in mind that uh, Kinsey um, was friends with this Nazi and uh, that this Nazi knew Aleister Crowley. And so that puts Kinsey, I guess, two degrees of 
Kevin Bacon away from Crowley. Maybe that's what it should be instead of seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, seven degrees of Aleister Crowley. Um, because it seems like anybody with political power or any um, outsized influence from around this time period um, isn't, isn't too far away from Crowley and uh, someone who definitely had, like Kinsey, but I would argue even more so, um, a great influence on the world and leading up to the world that we live in today. And so while Kinsey is often thought of as one of the first sexologists, there are also people like Dr. Harry Benjamin, whom Kinsey met, who is a member of the Fabian Society's World Lead for Sexual Reform. And I bring this up because Benjamin and other sexologists preceding Kinsey, like Albert Moll and Magnus Hirschfeld, were also friends of Virick. And I haven't done a whole lot of uh, research into Virick, but he seems like someone who could probably have an episode of his own as well perhaps maybe one day but there also might be bigger fish to fry but dr friedrich carl hugo victor von baljasek quite the mouthful was a district captain of two polish towns during the years of nazi occupation and a child molester who abused german polish and jewish children as well as his own progeny and baljasek's crimes would extend over a what is believed to be a roughly 30-year period from the end of the 20s up until the 50s. And if this is true, it could be debated um, by German newspapers at the time, reported that Balusek, that he would present children with the ultimatum that it was uh, to suffer abuse from him or to go to the gas chambers. So whether that is sensational reporting coming from German newspapers of the time, or whether that is true, that is certainly one of the most horrifying and grotesque things, one of the most evil things that one could possibly imagine. And Kinsey would visit Frank for a year prior to Balusek getting caught, and there's no evidence to say whether Balusek and Kinsey ever met together in person, but they most certainly exchange notes between one another. As I previously mentioned, Kinsey would even at one point tell Balusek to stay safe um, when collecting data. And Balusek was encouraged by Kinsey to do what he did. So it's hard to argue that there was anything new, neutral about um, Kinsey's correspondence with either Rex King or Balusek. All right, now. Let's read some quotes from some German newspapers in regards to Kinsey and von Balusek. So that way we can get all of this nasty, nasty, nasty business out of the way. So I can go cut open my head and break apart my skull so I can dump boiling hot water and Dawn dish soap over my brain and hopefully cleanse it somewhat. So let's see what some of these quotes from German publications of the time have to say about Kinsey and his connection with bon, von Balusek. The connection with Kinsey towards whom he showed off his crimes had a disastrous effect on Bal, von Balusek. In his, diary, in his diaries, he'd stuck in the letters from the sex researcher, sex researcher Kinsey in which he'd been encouraged to continue his research. He had also started relationships to expand his researches, researches. One shivers to think of the lengths he went to. Um, here's another one from Berliner Zeitung. I know I'm butchering that. 
Kinsey had asked the pedophile specifically for material of his perverse actions. The presiding judge, Dr. Berger, noted that it was Kinsey's duty to get Balusek locked up instead of corresponding with him. Uh, here's another one. He made statistics of all these experiences, and he sent them with comprehensive reports to the American sex researcher, Kinsey. In one reply, which apart from a thank you contained the warning, Be careful. Balusek cut out the signature from this letter and stuck it in his diary. And from the National Zeitung. In the diaries described as volume one and four, he described with pedantic exactness how he committed his crimes. Balusek had close contact with the so-called American sex researcher Kinsey, to whom he repeatedly and explicitly report reported his perverse actions. Balusek had also described those in pedantic detail in his diaries. And I have more notes on, uh, you know, some statements from the Kinsey Institute and people working there where uh, they are, you know, basically endorsing pedophilia or chalking up that the main damage comes from the, you know, hysteria of those people surrounding the victims of abuse. But I will just go ahead and end it off with this one from Clarence Tripp, who was a Kinsey researcher at the Institute. And uh, if you watch the documentary, Kinsey's Pedophiles, you will see Clarence Tripp in it. And I just want to say that he is like the just most disgusting human being that you can possibly think of. The type of person who... Uh, if I wasn't so deadened inside from looking at this type of stuff, it would really make my skin crawl. And so here's what Clarence Tripp says about uh, the subject. Pedophilia is an almost non-existent kind of crime. For instance, they use words like child molestations. What is that? Nobody knows. Abuse of children? Are they talking about boxing them against their ear or hitting them with a stovepipe? Are they talking about tickling them a little? Are you talking about fondling? I hesitate to even call Rex King a pedophile. So that gives you an idea of uh, some of the kind of attitudes of people of the Kinsey Institute when it comes to arguably the most heinous crime that uh, can be committed because it doesn't even need to be said, but you know, pedophilia might just be worse than murder because at least in murder you're taking someone's life, but in pedophilia, oftentimes you are destroying a whole person's life and condemning them to live in existence with the uh, the trauma and often shame that that comes from this type of abuse of children. And so now let's move on to a uh, <laughs> I don't know, not really that much lighter subject matter, but we got all that nasty business out of the way. And now we can talk about the uh, good old wholesome relationship of Kinsey to <laughs> eugenics. <laughs> uh, so Kinsey spent a period of time studying at Harvard, and this was a time when what was called the new biology was big. And a lot of people at Harvard during the brief stint uh, that Kinsey spent studying there were into eugenics. And eugenics was just a very big uh, ideological current that existed in academia at the time. And 
it had an influence on Kinsey, and Kinsey wasn't well influenced by behaviors like Pavlov and people like Charles Darwin, and it was kind of these ideas that caused Kinsey to stray away from his uh, strict Methodist upraising, his religious upbringing, and uh, to move on to uh, his very secular, um, physical, materialistic view of reality. And Joan talks of Kinsey's terrifying call for the sterilization of lower-level Americans. And as most of you are probably aware of some of the history of eugenics in America, because I can imagine the type of people who are going to be attracted to this podcast are already going to know, but there was a lot of people in America who were sterilized because they were deemed to be mongoloids or to be retarded in mental growth or however it is that they would have phrased it at the time and Kinsey was by all means in support of this and he was both into negative and positive eugenics and um, he developed this interest as I said at his time studying at Harvard specifically the Busey the Bussy <laughs> institution and this is um, during a time of Harvard's eugenic era and you this isn't just me saying this I mean this is on the books, you can read an entry about Harvard's eugenics area at Harvard Magazine. Um, can't remember the name of the article off the top of my head, but it was most certainly um, a, a big ideological impetus for many people in academia at the time. So James H. Jones says in Alfred C. Kinsey, A Private Public Life, which is where many of the quotes from James Jones comes from in this uh, podcast that I have been doing, and I will leave in the show notes, um, not all of them, but the links, uh, or the names at least, of uh, where I primarily got most of these quotes, which is mainly going to be uh, Alfred C. Kinsey, A Private and Public Life, which is the most popular biography of Kinsey, and the much more critical um Judith Reisman book, Kinsey Crimes and Consequences, but also a lot of this just came from uh, my own research looking on, on the internet and going through blogs that probably I and a handful of other people are the only people to have, have read and, uh, you know, that cite back to uh, more primary sources. But I will uh, leave the the main sources of information in the show notes so if anybody wants to learn more about about this or get more salacious details for for some reason um, they're able to do that but anyhow um, James H. Jones says Kinsey concentrated on negative eugenics calling for a program of sterilization that was at once sweeping and terrifying Quote, the reduction of birth rate of the lowest classes must depend upon the sterilization of perhaps a tenth of our population, end quote. So that was James Jones quoting Kinsey saying that um, at least a tenth of the population needs to be sterilized. And uh, in the footnotes of James H. Jones's biography of Kinsey, it says that Kinsey strongly endorsed both positive and negative eugenics. With cool logic and chilling moral certainty, he advocated a program of birth selection, 
which he defined, defined as a reduction of the birth rate of the less desirable elements and no less an increase in the birth rate of desirable elements. So that was Kidney saying a reduction of the birth rate of the less desirable and an increase of the birth rate of the desirable elements. And Jones goes on to say in this footnote, since few people doubted the wisdom of raising the birth rate of the desirable elements, Kinsey concentrated on negative eugenics, calling for a program of sterilization that was at once sweeping and terrifying, um, and that he also wrote, Kinsey did, the nation that dares institute sterilization on this scale will be followed by its neighbors. They cannot safely ignore the quality of their enemies. And Kinsey was also influenced by Hermann Mueller and very likely knew him considering that this Nobel laureate geneticist would join the Indiana University Zoology Department, which Kinsey had once belonged to in 1945. He maybe still belonged to it, but um, he was on to his sex research at this point. And both men shared a lot in common. They both received funds through the National Research Council and... Um, so the Rockefeller Foundation, and they both shared an interest in eugenics, sterilization, and the removal of sexual taboos. And in 1932, Mueller would begin working at the Rockefeller-funded Kaiser Wilhelm Brain Research Institute in Berlin. Once again, a whole episode could be done on the Kaiser Wilhelm Brain Research in Berlin in 1932. And he also had a relationship with a scientist named Freyer von Verschur, Mueller did, who had notoriously, who had the notoriously evil Mingala as his assistant, and Mueller would work along other scientists who would contribute to the Nazis' views on racial hygiene, despite being half Jewish himself. And he would go on after that to work as a scientist in the USSR, still receiving Rockefeller money, and uh, he would even be an advisor to the Manhattan Project. And it would uh, be in 1946 that he would win his Nobel for the discovery that x-rays can um, accelerate genetic mutation, uh, to put it simply. And so it is likely that Kinsey knew Mueller, who was an intense eugenicist himself, and he at least kind of got, um, was influenced by him. And now we move on to what probably a lot of you have been waiting for, which is Kinsey and Crowley. And we will also after this go into MK Ultra research. So we're really ratcheting up to the kind of fun things and the things that are less often talked about in regards to, uh, to, to Kinsey. And so in 1955, nearing the end of Kinsey's life, he would begin to make his way across Europe and he would first stop in like Norway and Sweden, some of the more Scandinavian countries before he went on to France and then he'd go on to England until he made his way to Italy. And uh, he had been looking, or at least trying to procure the diaries of Aleister Crowley, and he was not able to get his grubby little mitts on the diaries of the lecherous Crowley and, uh, in England. So he would visit Italy and go to the Abbey of Thelema with the Crowleyite, Crowleyite and film director Kenneth Anger. And Anger would say of Kinsey that, quote, Kinsey was obsessed with obtaining the great beast day-to-day -day sex diaries to obtain great monies and maintain the support of the university. Kinsey needed the excuse of research to validate his 24 hours a day obsession with sex. However, his battle cry, uh, 
Crowley's battle cry of do your best and let other people react as they will seemed a variation on Crowley's do. Oh, sorry about that. However, Kinsey's battle cry of do your best and let other people react as they will seemed to be a variation on Crowley's do as thou wilt maxim. And so Kinsey and Crowley, um, not Kinsey and Crowley, Kinsey and Kenneth Anger would just hang out at the Abbey of Thelema. And uh, as many of you know, some of you may not know, Kenneth Anger was a film director. His most famous work, Lucifer Rising, is not about puppy dogs and, and kitty cats, but it's heavily influenced by Anger's real interest in ritual magic and specifically Aleister Crowley. And a uh, fun fact about Lucifer Rising is that Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin was initially going to do the soundtrack, but then that fell through and uh, it ended up being Bobby Busalil, who was involved with the Manson family, who would end up doing the soundtrack from a prison for Lucifer Rising. And uh, if you guys are interested in learning more about Kenneth Anger in detail, I would recommend Subliminal Jihad's podcast episode about him. But anyhow, so Anger and Kinsey would go to the Abbey of Philema, which is located in a small fishing island, which is off the coast of Sicily. And it would be the home for Crowley and his, uh, and his secluded community that, was, um, that he would house in the bungalow um, that existed there. And Crowley and his followers would transform this bungalow into an occult temple. And Kinsey was photographed with anger in Crowley's room that he named La Chambre de Cochemars. I'm sorry, I know that I butchered that, but what it means in English is the Chamber of Nightmares. And in this room were lewd frescoes and paintings of all types of sexual acts, often of demon with demons and other entities that Crowley claimed to have made contact with. And it was where Crowley would actually hold his initiation ceremonies. And Anger noted that the highly and Anger noted the highly reminiscent character of Kinsey's shorthand code for the histories of his subject and Crowley's history of his own sex rituals. And so while there's no proof of direct contact between Crowley and Kinsey, one can only wonder when they both had correspondence with George Sylvester Virick and they both were alive during the same time. I've even seen it rumored that they had other shared correspondences, but I couldn't authenticate any of these myself. But one such example is the French jurist René Gaillon. And uh, don't get that confused with the uh, religious researcher René Guinan. Um, but anyhow, so there's a little bit about Kinsey and his relationship to Crowley and his way of thinking. And uh, there's certainly more that could be said of that. And there's a lot more that can be said of Kenneth Anger. And I guess the last thing that I'll mention about that is that Kinsey took a history from Kenneth Anger and I believe that he maybe even filmed him masturbating or something, if I'm not wrong, but I'm not sure on that. Don't want to get in trouble for talking about things that I am not sure of. But anyways, we are now coming to where we will shortly conclude the episode. But first, and not least by any means, we need to talk about Alfred Kinsey.
and MKUltra, and whether or not he was involved with the CIA's mind control research. When the Rockefeller Foundation began funding Kinsey's research into sexual behavior in 1941, they also began funding research into sex and its relationship to the brain at Columbia University. Albert Deutsch, in his 1951 Look magazine article, explains under the headline, Mental Cases Studied, that about two years ago, quote, Kinsey accepted an invitation from a group of Columbia University scientists to participate in a large-scale survey of the behavior of mental patients who have been subjected to topectomy, a modified form of the recently developed brain operation known as lobotomy. Assisted by Pomeroy, Kinsey has been conducting an intensive study of the sexual behavior and attitudes before and after operation of mental patients at Rockland State Hospital in New York and Greystone Park State Hospital in New Jersey. This project will take several years to complete. In the female report, Kinsey states that we have had the opportunity to make a long-range study of 95 patients who had been subjects for frontal lobe operations. From these patients, we secured histories before the operation, obtaining a record of their sexual activities for some time prior to the operation, and we similarly obtained records from the same patients some time after the operation. And both frontal lobotomy and the Columbia Greystone Brain Research Project are mentioned in the index of the female volume. And so what kind of research was it being carried out by Columbia scientists at the Greystone Mental Hospital in New Jersey? In the journal publication of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons entitled Neurosurgical Focus, we can get a summary of some of this research carried out in an article about Dr. Robert G. Heath. And we can get an idea of the research that Heath was doing at at the time as the chief psychiatrist of the Grayson Project, where he would oversee the research being done. And this once again comes from the American Association of Neurological Surgeons. Despite being a board certified neurologist and never finishing his psychiatric training, the military drafted Heath as chief psychiatrist at the United States Marine Hospital in New York. According to Heath, this kind of career shift in the military was typical for neurologists. There was a higher demand for a psychiatrist, and the medical hierarchy at that point considered anyone who treated nerves to be also able to treat nervous people. With only 12 months of formal training, Heath practiced psychiatry for two years. During this time, he started a family and began what would become a long and prolific research career. In 1944, Heath published a review of his clinical experience using pharmacological agents to treat soldiers with traumatic war neuroses. This was one of the, his first articles to be published, and it incorporated many ideas that he would revisit through his later years in research. His research methods combined a biological and a psychoanalytical approach to studying psychiatric disorders and placed an emphasis on the emotional pathways involved. Upon returning from the war, Heath continued his study at Columbia's College of Physicians and Surgeons with a fellowship at the psychoanalytical clinic under Dr. Sandor Ratto. Ratto's stance on psychoanalysis influenced Heath to incorporate a multidisciplinary approach in his later research. These beliefs placed an emphasis on understanding the neurophysiological basis of psychiatric disease, a concept championed by Sigmund Freud, and an underlying principle of Heath and Rado's research at Columbia. Heath became the senior psychiatrist on the research initiative known as the Columbia Greystone Project. 
The primary goal of this project was to find a safer and more effective neurological alternative to lobotomy. The procedure that was developed became known as topectomy and involved excising a smaller and more superficial portion from the frontal lobe. The history of psychosurgery is filled with tales of researchers pushing the boundaries of science and ethics. These stories often create a dark historical framework for some of the most important medical and surgical advancements. Dr. Robert G. Heath, a board-certified neurologist, psychiatrist, and psychoanalyst, holds a debated position within the framework and is most notably remembered for his research on schizophrenia. Dr. Heath was one of the first physicians to implant electrodes in deep cortical structures as a psychosurgical intervention. He used electric stimulation in an attempt to cure patients with schizophrenia and as a method of conversion therapy in homosexual men. This research was highly controversial, even prior to the implementation of current ethics standards for clinical research and often goes unmentioned within the historical narrative of deep brain stimulation. While distinction between the modern practice of deep brain stimulation and its controversial origins is necessary, it's important to examine Dr. Heath's work. In the following years, Heath studied on brain stimulation and expanded to electrical recording of cerebral activity. A number of studies explored the effects of drugs, such as lysergic acid dimethylamide, LSD, and mescaline on the human central nervous system, utilizing electrode recordings. And, obviously, as most of you know, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency was very involved with this type of research using drugs such as LSD and mescaline in the article from the American Association of Neurologists says, authors have speculated that these studies were funded by the CIA under the project entitled MKUltra, although Heath denied any such involvement. However, Heath did admit to being approached by a CIA official to conduct government research, but claimed that he was not interested as he was more concerned with caring for his patients. Despite his public denial, a scandal arose surrounding Heath and therefore Tulane's suspected involvement in government research. Students at Tulane University and the general public were outraged that the government might have been guiding psychiatric research toward what they believed to be an attempt at mind control. The truth about these experiments would be disclosed in 1977 under the Freedom of Information Act. Tulane had indeed signed an Army facility security clearance for the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology in 1956. Whether the LSD and mescaline trials were government-sponsored is still debated, but the few surviving military records do refer to Heath testing a drug in several monkeys and an inmate who was also being tested in the Soviet Union for mind-controlling applications. Heath's collusion with the CIA, as well as negative publicity in the 1970s from non-scientific publications criticizing Heath's work, manifested in poor public relations. These publications included a New Orleans newspaper article, The Mysterious Experiments of Dr. Robert Heath, in which we wonder who is crazy and who is sane, in the 1978 book, The Mind Manipulators. And so we see that the person who was the head psychiatrist of the Columbia Greystone Project was MK Ultra, And so we know that Kinsey was doing work with the Columbia Greystone Project. In the book Tulane, The Emergence of a Modern University, 1945, by, K- by Clarence Moore and Joseph Gordon, states, 
In the course of his long career, Dr. Robert G. Heath would receive both high professional acclaim and sharp criticism from his fellow physicians. A full account of either the controversy surrounding his work or the range of his scientific accomplishments falls outside the limits of this volume. For present purposes, it is sufficient to note that at the beginning of the 1950s, Heath and his fellow scientists were working at or very near the outer limits of existing neuropsychological knowledge, a fact that was not lost upon U.S. military and civilian intelligence agency officials who were already engaged in highly secret efforts to develop psychochemical weapons, as well as interrogation and mind control techniques that could be used against Cold War adversaries. From the late 1940s onwards, close ties existed between the Army's Edgewood Arsenal, where chemical warfare research and experimentation were conducted, and the CIA and various military intelligence services. By 1951, the sometimes cooperative, sometimes competitive military-CIA nexus had given rise to a coordinated Army, Navy, Air Force, CIA endeavor called Project Artichoke. As summarized in the 1952 memorandum, the project's major objectives included evaluation and developments of any method by which we can get information from a person against his will and without his knowledge. Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against such fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? The following years, in 1953, Project Artichoke grew into a large and more ambitious undertaking known as Project MKUltra, the scope of which remained hidden until the summer of 77. In the wake of two congressional investigations, the reluctant disclosure of some 1,600 pages of records obtained through FOIA, CIA Director Stanfield Turner disclosed the broad outline of a 25-year, multi-million dollar program of research. And so then the author goes on to talk for a little bit about how they were doing research into all different kinds of areas with drugs and all kinds of other crazy things. But then he goes on to say, Precisely when the government became interested in the Tulane schizophrenia studies remains unclear, but in March 1954, Heath was the principal speaker at a seminar conducted by Army Chemical Corps at its Edgewood Arsenal Medical Laboratories. His subject was, Some Aspects of Electrical Stimulation and Recording in the Brain of Man. Within a few months, Tulane had signed an Army facility security clearance for the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology. In 1955, Dr. Russell R. Monroe, a psychiatrist on Heath's research team, became the principal investigator for Army contract DA-18108, a project listed in university records under the title Clinical Studies of Neurological and Psychiatric Changes During the Administration of Certain Drugs. Classified Army records were somewhat more specific, listing the contractor's purpose as to study behavior during administration, LSD, and mescaline. In retrospect, the Army's interest in Heath's work is not difficult to understand. At the time, Heath gave his 1954 seminar presentation at Edgewood Arsenal, behavior control of a rather primitive kind had already been achieved through electrical stimulation of the brains of lower animals. At McGill University, James Old and Peter C. Milner had reported that rats with electrodes implanted the brain septal region would press levers at a rate of 2,000 times per hour to receive stimulation. At the National Institute of Health, Dr. John Lilly attracted intense interest from the CIA and other agencies through his use of similar techniques on primates. And it just goes on to talk a little bit more about MKUltra. But anyways, we know that who was the, the person who was the chief psychiatrist of the Columbia Greystone Project would be involved with MKUltra research during his life. And one can only wonder if he was involved with MKUltra research while Kinsey was doing work alongside the Columbia Greystone Project. 
And in the female report, Kinsey says about his research with Columbia Greystone, the detailed report is being presented on the Columbia Greystone Brain Project. In summary, it may be pointed out that among the 95 females in the sample, the intensities of sexual arousal, the number of items that brought sexual arousal, the frequencies of sexual activities of particular sorts, and the frequencies of total sexual outlet did not show any significant change between a period antedating the institutionalization and the period when the histories were retaken some years after the operation. Kinsey stated that he did not think lobotomies had any effect on sex drive, despite the thought amongst other more qualified people like neurologists who went so far, and Kinsey would go so far as to say, against the thinking of his colleagues, there is no de demonstrated relation between the function of the frontal lobes of the human brain and any of the investigated aspects of sexual behavior. And we also know from the Look magazine article that Kinsey was conducting research at Rockland State Hospital. Karen Wetmore, in her book Surviving Evil, CIA Mind Control Experiments in Vermont, describes her experience in undergoing MKUltra experiments. Dr. Colin Ross in the foreword states, I have never met anyone who has worked so hard for so long to obtain solid documentation of her allegations of mind control experimentation. As you'll read in these page in, pages, Karen filed numerous Freedom of Information Act requests with the CIA and military, corresponding with the numerous officials and politicians, and read a great deal of background material. Piece by piece, she assembled her facts until she had documented a large network of professional connections, relationships, and contacts between her own psychiatrist and the network of CIA and military mind control doctors. In the book, Karen says of Rockland where Kinsey would conduct research, I filed FOIAs with the National Institute of Mental Health and the United States Public Health Service, both of which funded the Rockland Project. No documents were located. I contacted Rockland State Hospital and Orangeburg for Rockland Project documents. The main processing terminal was located at Rockland State Hospital. I obtained a Vermont biennial report that provided details about the Rockland Project, a CIA project. The Rockland Project is currently a subject about which state and federal officials and federal funding agencies that supplied the monies to the project and Rockland State Hospital all share collective amnesia. Wetmore describes being placed in straitjackets, being secluded, and being given drugs, and all other manners of torture, including electroshock, with the goal of inducing seizures in order for studies. A person offered room in... Uh, my apologies, a person often rumored to be MKUltra is Dr. Nathan Klein, and he also conducted the bulk of his research at Rockland State. And Kinsey also knew other MKUltra scientists, such as the infamous Dr. Ewan Cameron, who is kind of like the granddaddy of MKUltra researchers. Um, and he would actually be invited by Dr. Ewan Cameron to speak to McGill University and according to Reisman, a letter surfaced with a reference to Dr. Camera as one of Kinsey's many scientifically trained colleagues, but I could not find the letter that Judith Reisman mentions. And if none of this convinces you, perhaps this will. MKUltra Subproject 67 shows that the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, which was a CIA front, was funding research at the Word Redacted Institute of Sex Research at where else but the University 
of Indiana. The monitor for this project was none other than the infamous Sidney Gottlieb, another one of the granddaddies of MKUltra research, someone who's very um, prominently mentioned by people who get interested in figuring out the truth of all the CIA's evil action actions. The stated purpose for this was allegedly library searches, consultation, assessment, and evaluation of data submitted by technical services divisions, translation, and transcription services. The initial name of the institute that Kinsey headed was the Institute for Sex Research. So the approximate time span that's given for the uh, when this was conducted is 1957, the year after Kinsey died. So it is potentially possible that if MK Ultra work was being done at the Kinsey Institute, it could have been done under Paul Gebbard, the person who comes after Kinsey as the director of the Institute. However, the document in question doesn't describe much other than expenses for the project that had already been conducted, and it is entirely possible that these state that the stated purposes for these expenses are dubious. While we can't be a hundred percent sure that Kinsey was working for MK Ultra as an MK Ultra researcher, it is by no stretch of the imagination a crazy thing to think, and I personally find it highly plausible. Um, it's actually kind of hard for me given this information that I just presented, how he had all these connections to people who were conducting MK Ultra research, how an Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University was being funded by the CIA and is mentioned in MK Ultra Subproject 67, um, and how, you know, not only did Kinsey know MK Ultra researchers, but that he conducted research along people who just so happened to be involved with MK Ultra at one point or another. I find it highly, highly, highly plausible that Kinsey himself was an MK Ultra researcher. And this really, as dark as it is, can only make one wondered wonder what type of research was being conducted in these mental hospitals and if this could possibly explain where some of his childhood sexuality subjects were found for research. Because whether it be Rex King or whether it be Von Bajasek, who we mentioned earlier, it just seems highly implausible to me that um, both of them would have molested the number of children who aren't mentioned in, uh, in the childhood data that Kinsey presents. And I also find it unlikely that, as it states in the mail volume before talking about this childhood data, that this really just comes from, you know, the other data comes from parents and people who happen to observe stuff happening amongst children. It seems highly unlikely to me that they would take such a scientific approach. And now we come to the end of our story. And the end of our story is the end of Kinsey. Towards the end of Kinsey's life, he became depressed, and this was due to a multitude of reasons. One of them being that the female volume of his book did not have the sales that he was expecting based off the sales that the male volume had had. And another reason for Kinsey's depression towards the end of his life was being investigated by the Reese Congressional Committee amid the charges that he helped aid subversion and that the, you know, foundations had an um, 
undue influence on society and that Kinsey was a part of this. And so one evening when he was dejected, he had uh, been ratcheting up his sexual behavior over the course of his lifetime. And in one evening in August of 1954, he went into his office at the basement of Wiley Hall. He threw a rope over a pipe and he grabbed the rope in one hand and tied a knot around his scrotum and he stepped up onto a chair and then he jumped off and this act this masochistic act you know was um something that kinsey had been leading up to for a long time and his masochistic behavior just kept getting crazier and crazier um he one time crawled into his own bathtub and circumcised himself without anesthetic and he kept inflicting more and more pain on himself and was finding it harder to achieve sexual arousal and stimulation and so this was kind of his you know final act of sadomasochism and some people theorize that this could have played a role in kinsey's death because kinsey would get what is called orchitis and orchitis is um, usually an infection that uh, pinpoints the testicles and it is usually, you know, marked by pain, swelling, and it is most often caused by gonorrhea or syphilis or even tuberculosis. But there's also what's called traumatic orchitis, and this comes following tra trauma and there are some people who theorize that this could very well have been what caused Kinsey's orchitis was this <laughs> act of jumping off the chair and hanging himself from his <laughs> nuts. But anyways, it'd be a very fitting end for Kinsey if this were to be the case, because he is someone who kind of his whole career came from his guilt over masturbation, the guilt that when he prayed was not cured. And so it'd be fitting if his addiction that is what set him on the whole trajectory of his life ended up being the very thing that killed him. And so that's it for Alfred Kinsey. We have reached the end of this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I know some of it's pretty grotesque, but, um, I will continue to do episodes about other subjects. I'll make sure to make the next one a lot more fun. I just thought that this would be something that I could maybe help contribute to other researchers because I don't feel like a lot of people have talked about a lot of the things, specifically Kinsey and his connections to MK Ultra Scientist. And so I thought some of this information was kind of fresh and hadn't been talked about. But Anyways, I need to go scrub my brain and wash my eyes and call my mom and tell her I love her. And I really don't want to talk about Alfred Kinsey anymore. And you guys probably don't want to listen anymore. But anyways, you can follow me on Twitter at ThingObserver. And you can also follow this podcast and there will be more episodes to come. That will be a lot better than this one because I'm going to get better at this because I don't know if I'm happy with my performance on this one. But anyways, take care. The wind is howling over the sea. The sea is restless, it beckons to me.
can't go on, I can't face the dawn My life is empty since my love is gone Wish I could tell her I love her so Wish I could ask her which way to go Should I find a new love or join my true love Sea whispers to me Eternity. 